Good morning, everyone. Uh, great again to have you here with us to gather together and work through God's Word together as we continue in our sermon series through the book of Acts. Um, what we've seen so far in the book of Acts is God starting His church. This is a book of action. This is a book of uh, miraculous working of God's power. And this is a work of the spread of the gospel. Today, the message is titled, What's Your Story? If you've known Jesus, if you've heard the gospel, and you've placed your faith in Him, no doubt you have experienced Him in ways different than other people have experienced Him. That there's one gospel, there's one message of Jesus, there's one message of salvation, but many different stories of that. We call that, those stories, your testimony. Right? Everyone has a different testimony. Everyone has a different experience of God's grace. Uh, recently, my mom was cleaning out um, her office, and she found my grandfather's testimony. And this is actually a picture of it right here. He wrote it out on a piece of paper. I, think, I believe he got saved maybe in the 90s, 1990 or so. She just found it. He, this is just one page of it, but he had it scribbled out. And it was really cool. My grandfather's been passed away now for 10 years, over 10 years. And she just stumbled upon his testimony. And he, and he wrote it out. This is just one page of his testimony. But as you can see, what he said from the beginning, it says, Pastor Brother Douglas. That's what we call um, the pastors down in Mississippi, Brother Douglas. I'd be Brother Manning, I guess, which sounds kind of weird to say. But... Uh, Pastor Brother Douglas was preaching about growing in Christ, not always being a baby, and getting off of milk and eating solid food. And then, continuing, if you were to read my grandfather's testimony here, at the very end, he, he asked the question, are you a church member or are you a born-again Christian? For my grandfather, it seems his testimony was one of someone that had attended church but never knew who Jesus truly was until he met Jesus for himself. That's the power of a testimony. It's a story of how Jesus has specifically changed you, and it's a story that people can't argue with, right? It's your story. It's your sort of letter to the world about who Jesus is. Today in Acts 16, where we're going to be at, verses 11 to 34, you can turn there in your Bibles if you'd like, we are going to see three different testimonies. Three different people that had a radical experience of God's grace through Jesus Christ. Three different people of how they came to faith. Again, the gospel is one message of salvation. The gospel doesn't change. There's only one Jesus, right? There's only one cross he was crucified on. There's only one tomb that he was raised out of. There's only one a way to heaven. There's only one Lord and Savior, that's Jesus Christ. But that one message leads to many different stories as many people have uh, come to him in faith. And so as we're going to look through these testimonies together today in Acts 16, we're going to see the different ways that God calls people to himself, the different ways that God saves people and what that means for us as a church, okay? So uh, let's go ahead and read our text starting in Acts 16. We're going to read 11 through 34. It's a little lengthy. We got the text here, and then we'll go ahead and jump in, all right? This is what it says, starting in um, verse 11. So uh, just a quick reminder. 
Uh, last week we saw Paul start what's called a second missionary journey. Um, he is going towards Macedonia. He's on a boat going towards Macedonia, uh, setting out into like a new frontier to start new churches. So where he's going, he's never been to before in his life to start these new churches. Starting verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we, this is Paul and his companions, made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia in a Roman colony. We remained in this city for some days, so they go to Philippi, and they're in the city for a while. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One woman who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. After she believed and was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we, met, uh, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she, this she kept doing for days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned to the Spirit and said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews. They are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans, uh, as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them. And the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave them orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them in prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. That's what you get for exercising a demon out of a little girl, it seems. Verse 25. At midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew a sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fury, fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. He was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into the house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Here in our section, we see three testimonies. We see the testimony of Lydia, the testimony of a slave girl, not even given a name, and the testimony of the Philippian jailer. And what we're going to see by looking at these testimonies is the various ways that God saves people. We all have our own unique story because we're all different people. Not one of us is exactly the same, and our experience of God's grace is all different. So starting with Lydia in Acts uh, 16, verses 13 to 16, her salvation 
is what I have termed a quiet salvation. A quiet salvation. What we learn from Lydia is that some of us, the Lord saves quietly, like a whisper in a moment. It just kind of happens, okay? So let's look at this woman, Lydia. Lydia is a well-off businesswoman. It says in verse 14 that she is from uh, the, the city of Thyatar, a seller of purple goods, and was a worshiper of God. So what's going on here? Back in the day, you know, this is written 2,000 years ago, um, if you were a seller of purple goods, it meant that you sold uh, a purple dye made from a root called a matter root, which was very expensive, okay? So she was going around, she was probably in Philippi, selling this, this purple dye, these purple goods, um, dyes that was made to, you know, to dye carpet or clothing or something like that. And if we think about the color purple, what is that? Royalty, regal, right? Kings and queens. And so this was Lydia. She was um, a well-off woman, businesswoman, entrepreneur. Um, she you know, had some money, and she was evidently also religious. She, Paul found her praying by a riverside on the outskirts of the town. So this woman, as I think about Lydia, I don't know if you guys have ever seen the Blind Side movie. I've never actually seen the, the movie, but I'm familiar with it. I think about, Lydia reminds me of Sandra Bullock's character. Um, I forget her name. Tui, I think is the last name. Leanne Tui, I think is her name. If you've seen the movie. The movie The Blind Side is about the, uh, uh, Michael Orr, I believe. Um, he, was this, he was a homeless guy in, uh, in Mississippi or outside of Memphis, uh, uh, just a kid, and then this family uh, sort of takes him in, and the big sort of star of the movie is Sandra Bullock's character. This, is, this woman is religious, right? She, she's a, a Christian, follower of Christ. They're well off. They take this kid in, and he, he becomes this famous football player, right? So whenever I think about Lydia, I think about Sandra Bullock. This is the type of woman Lydia is. She's got money. She's a go-getter. She's religious. She kind of has her life figured out. If you, if, if, you kinda, if you think about it that way, she has her life, especially during a time where no one really had anything, right? Where mass poverty, people, you know, people didn't have anything. She has her life figured out, or so it seems. She's out praying, and then in an instant, what it says in 14b is that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. She has her life figured out. She has all the money in the world, everything she needs. She's comfortable. She's religious. She goes to church. But in an instant, God saves her. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. This is a very quiet testimony. It, it's, almost, it's, it's almost like it doesn't even happen, right? You would have no idea, looking at Lydia, that she would come to faith on the outside. But God opened her up on the inside. So what are some things that we can learn from Lydia's testimony? Well, the first thing we can learn is this. Salvation can happen in the most unremarkable and uneventful ways, okay? And be just as legitimate, God-glorifying, and miraculous. All it says is God opened her heart to believe. That's it. God opened her heart to believe. And I say... Praise God for quiet salvations. 
And maybe that's your experience. Maybe God saved you in a quiet way. And I think that's a lot of us. Sometimes we think about, you know, coming to Jesus and having a miraculous come-to-Jesus moment, like having a brush with death, right, getting in a car wreck, surviving cancer, something like that. Well, that's not the story for Lydia. She was praying, and God saved her. She was praying, and God saved her in a moment. This type of belief, I believe, happens for people that have grown up in church, people that have a religious background, people that have um, attended church you know, most of their life. This is kind of how I was saved, I would say. My dad was a pastor down south, Southern Baptist Church growing up. Um, I got saved at the age of, I got, well, I got baptized at the age of eight. I'll say that much. I'm not sure if I was truly saved then, okay? I got baptized at the age of eight. I didn't really get it till college where I started hanging out with uh, other Christians my age, and they started talking about Jesus like they actually knew him, and it wasn't just something they did on Sundays. And I was like, this is weird because I know Jesus, but they seem to, like, really know Jesus, right? <laughs> Have a relationship with this. Something's not adding up. And somewhere along the way, I got saved. I'm really not sure. It happened in a quiet moment. I have no idea, but I know I trust Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And that's kind of how it happens for people that have a religious background. It's not always a come to Jesus big moment. It happens at a quiet moment. The famous example of this that I've found is John Wesley. I don't know if you guys know who John Wesley is, a very important theologian. He was the guy that started Methodism, or the Methodist Church. He was the founder of the Methodist Church. We all familiar with the Methodist Church. He was an Englishman uh, growing up during the 1700s. He was a really sort of astute religious theologian type. Um, he founded a group in college, or his brother did, and he was, led the group called the Holy Club. Talk about a religious nerd, right? You come up with a group called the Holy Club. And their whole point for the Holy Club was to um, follow a method of righteousness. So they were very studious in reading and praying and, and uh, you know, doing good works, that type of thing, which is all awesome. Um, but that's where the idea of Methodism comes from, from this Holy Club. So John Wesley graduates from college. He's a pastor in England. He leaves to come to Georgia in the U.S. He's in Georgia for two years. The ministry does not work out. He goes back to um, England, very depressed, very despondent. He's like, I don't even know if I believe this stuff anymore. That's really where he was at because he was so beaten up. And then he has something that happens, and it's sort of like a Lydia moment. This is what happens. This is his story. This is his testimony. This is what he says. He says, in the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street. So he's going to just a group meeting on Aldersgate. Where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. So someone was reading this writing from Martin Luther, uh, really a sermon of, by Martin Luther uh, on the book of Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Jesus... John Wesley says, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. 
John Wesley had a Lydia conversion. The Lord opened up John Wesley's heart to believe. What I'm saying is that God often saves people in these quiet moments or outside, nothing miraculous happens, but on the inside, someone is being transformed or transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light. On the outside, nothing's happening. On the inside, eternity is being changed from hell to heaven. And that is a miraculous thing that we see. And you could read that in verse 14 and just skip on over it. But that's exactly what happened in Lydia. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention. So the first thing we see is people can be saved in most unremarkable ways. The second thing we see, and this is important, God initiates salvation, okay? If you're going to be saved, God has to do it. It says, who opened up her heart to pay attention to Paul? Was it Paul's charisma? Was it his sort of just yelling out and screaming and causing a big uh, display that made her listen? No, it says the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul was saying. God opens her heart to listen to Paul. So divine action precedes personal response. She hears with her heart and not her ears. That's what I'm saying. And, and for a pastor, this is where you have to believe in the sovereignty of God. Because a lot of people listen with their ears. And I can make you listen with your ears because you're here. I can't make you listen with your heart, right? I can't make you do that. Only God can make you listen with your heart. No amount of appeal on my part or Paul's part or anything is going to make you listen to me. Only God can open up your heart to believe. Here's an example I have. I was uh, back in whenever I was in college uh, I lived about 40, it, where I went to college was about 45 minutes south of where I'm from. And whenever I would go home, I would go to a church back home called the Journey Church. And um, every year they have their event called their E3 event. And the E3 stands for Easter Evangelism Explosion or something like that. And the whole idea of the E3 event is that the pastor just preaches a lot. He preaches like 14 days in a row, like 14 sermons in a row. And there was a mini revival that happened in this church over this E3 event. A lot of people were coming to faith and and believing in Christ, but it was all the people who were already members of the church. It was people that had already, you know, been a part of the church for years, serving, had already gone through a membership class, people that already said they believed in Christ. These were the people that were actually believing in Jesus, that were truly coming to faith. It was the people with this religious background. And what we learn, again, people can hear with their ears, but they can't hear with their hearts unless God initiates that. One of the ladies that came to faith was the wife of the youth leader. And I remember the youth leader saying offhandedly, he was like, babe, I thought we already had this conversation years ago, (laughs) right? I thought you already believed in Jesus, right? But she hadn't. It wasn't until that event, it wasn't until God initiated, God opened her heart, that she could actually hear with her heart and not her ears. And so from the story, the testimony of Lydia, what we see is that sometimes God saves people quietly, in a moment, in a moment's notice, without any big fanfare. The next testimony we're going to see after Lydia is a testimony of the slave girl. 
And if you're looking for a different story, you can't find anything much different than the, comparing the story of Lydia and the story of the slave girl. What we learn from the slave girl's story next is that some of us, God saves loudly. Some of us, God saves loudly. Some of us, the Lord saves from a life of pain, a life of struggle, and a life of abuse. That's what we see from the slave girl here. I think I have the text here. So after Paul and, and his crew hang out with Lydia, they meet this girl, this slave girl possessed by a demon. She is following them. She's crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God. And she, and she just keeps doing it days and days and days. And eventually Paul is so annoyed that he calls this demon out of her. It's, it's kind of a, a, strange, um, a strange tale right here. But what we see, just getting this girl's profile, is that this girl is the exact opposite of Lydia. One, Lydia is rich. Lydia is well off. Slave girl's poor, right? Slave girl has no money. The slave girl is owned. She's a slave. She has nothing to her name. So Lydia, rich. Slave girl, poor. Lydia is religious. Lydia has a background in praying and God and all that good stuff. Servant, the slave girl is demon-possessed, right? Demon-possessed. It says that she has a spirit of divination about her. The third thing, Lydia owns a business, Slave girl is owned by a business. Slave girl is exploited by a business. It says that she brought her, her owners much gain by her fortune telling. This girl has literally, in the, what the literal translation is in verse 16, a spirit python, spirit of divination, a spirit python. Um, in Greek mythology, there was this temple guardian named Python, who was like a serpent or a dragon, that type of thing. And over the years, um, this term Python came to mean someone who was possessed by a demon, who through this demon, Python spoke. And the, it, the idea is that this person was a fortune teller. And so she is really sort of oppressed by this really pagan type, situation, very, very demonic, right? That people would, would come and give money to these men so that they could hear an oracle or fortune telling from a demon, really. It, it's really kind of dark stuff, and that's what she is uh, kind of caught up in. Totally different than Lydia. And what she's doing, which is really interesting, she is pointing to Paul and the rest of his crew, saying that these are the people to listen to for salvation, which seems to be counter, you know, why would a demon want to point people to these men so that they would listen to them and believe in Jesus? doesn't really make sense. She recognizes them as people that have been followers of Jesus. Now, this is not unique in the Gospels. If you've read, the, you know, the Gospels, you might recognize that it is the demonically oppressed people that recognize Jesus for who he is. Time and time again, no one knows who this Jesus man is except for people that are possessed by demons, which is weird, okay? It doesn't make sense. This is, this is from the Gospels. This is Mark chapter 1, um, 23 and 24. Jesus has just started his ministry. He's going into a synagogue, and this is what happens. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? 
I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Continuing, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. If you remember the story of Jesus uh, calming the wind and the waves and the disciples are, are on, the, uh, you know, on the water on the boat. And it says they marveled and asked themselves, who is this man? Right? They couldn't figure out who Christ is. And yet right away the demonic know exactly who Jesus is. Those with unclean spirits, those with demons, know exactly who Jesus is. What's, what's interesting is that the work of Satan is to, they see who Jesus is clearly. The work of Satan is to keep us from seeing who Jesus is clearly. That's how it works. Satan knows exactly who Jesus is. The demonic know exactly who Jesus is. Their work is to keep us from seeing who Jesus is. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4. In their case... The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan's work is to blind us to who Christ is because he knows exactly who he is. He knows that he is the Savior of the world. And so if we're going back to our demon-possessed girl, what's going on? If she is trying, if the demon is trying to blind people to Christ, then why is the demon pointing to Paul and his company as people who are proclaiming the way of salvation? What's going on? That seems counterintuitive. What's going on is this. If Satan, or this demon, can associate the gospel with what is demonic and of the occult, then it can compromise this message of salvation. If people think, oh, this Paul, it must be associated with this fortune-telling python girl, and this message of Christ must be connected to this Greek mythology stuff, then that's going to compromise the witness of Jesus, right? That's going to blind people to who Jesus is. That's going to mislead people. And that's exactly what is going on. And so she's speaking in such a way as to associate the gospel with the demonic, with the occult, to blind people to who Christ really is, to discredit their message. And so Paul responds in verse 18, greatly annoyed, says to the demon, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very hour. There's a lot to learn from this slave girl. A lot to learn from her testimony. The first thing that we can learn from this girl is that while the gospel delivers all of us from the consequences of our sin, that's the good news. We're not separated from from God anymore. Our sins are not on us. That is priority. So while the gospel does that, the gospel for some of us delivers us from the consequences of other people's sin. This is the story of the slave girl. She is exploited. She is abused. She is oppressed. She is possessed. She doesn't, she is, think about someone who has just gone through the worst things in life. This is her situation. And as I think about the slave girl, I can't help but liken her to modern day sex slavery or modern day sex trafficking. Not that that's what she specifically was going through, but it's the same, it's the same type of thing. You know, that is a demonic enterprise that seeks to debase image bearers of God, people made in the image of God, 
um, destroys that image and then destroys this gift of sex that God has given humanity, given to a husband and a wife. And so this is her situation, and you can't get much different. Whenever God saves this slave girl, he, slaves, he saves her in a loud way. He brings her out of abuse, exploitation, oppression. And for some of us, this might be us. I don't know your testimonies. I don't know your stories. But maybe you've been oppressed in your life. Maybe you've been delivered not only from your own sins, but from the sins of others, from the consequence of sin of others. Maybe you've been neglected. Maybe you've been exploited. Maybe you have a history of abuse. Maybe you have a history of an abuser. And that's a different point. But the same message that Paul speaks to the slave girl, he also speaks to the slaveholders. He also speaks to her owners. The gospel does not discriminate whether you're oppressed or you're oppressor. We are all called to believe in Jesus. But for this girl and for yourself, maybe you never known or knew what it was to love until you knew the love of Jesus. It's a powerful thing. This is what biblical justice looks like. This is what deliverance of the gospel looks like. God cares about the oppressed, okay? God cares about people that are marginalized. God's people were slaves in Egypt for 400 years, right? The Israelites were slaves in Egypt for over 400 years. Do you think God cares about slavery? Do you think God cares about slaves, about oppressed people? He, he brought them out of Egypt, it says, by his mighty hand. Ten plagues, taking out the entire nation, taking out Pharaoh, judging this nation that enslaved his people. God cares about slaves. God cares about oppressed people. This is what Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke, his first real message. This is what he says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives then recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Our God is a God that hates people, that destroy his people, that has righteous indignation against the wicked, and that cares for the marginalized and the afflicted. For some of us, our testimonies are loud testimonies because our God is a loud God whenever it comes to oppression and injustice. Psalm 10, 14 and 15. If you've never really read the Psalms, I'll give you a quick little summary of how they work. Um, David writes the song, God, you're great. God, you're awesome. That's most of it. And then at the very bottom, he says, judge our enemies. Destroy our enemies. And you're reading about how awesome God is, and then he kind of sneaks in a line that says, destroy all our enemies. And you're like, where? Why, how, where did that come from, right? You kind of jumped out of nowhere. This is what Psalm 10, 14 says. It says, you, God, you see the trouble of the afflicted. You consider their grief and take it in hand. The victims commit themselves to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked. Call the evildoer to account for his wickedness that would not otherwise be found. In Psalm 3, David says, break the teeth of the wicked. God cares about people 
that have been oppressed, marginalized, and he judges oppressors. And he offers salvation to all. The question is, is the judgment going to fall on you or is the judgment going to fall on Jesus? That's the question. And that's whether you're oppressed or oppressor, whether you're slave or slaveholder. Is the judgment going to fall on you or is it going to fall on Christ? God will be vindicated. I think about that. Like, you know, terrorism, especially like, like ISIS and all that ex- extremist, um, um, you know, terrorism abroad. God judges. And that's a good thing. And, and we don't really want to venture in that judgment lane, right? My, my mom, and this, is, this I'm just kind of freestyling right now, but my mom struggles with hell, the concept of hell. And she believes in hell, but she really struggles with it. My grandma, I remember she said, God, I hope there's a hell, right? <laughs> and, and it's so different, two different generations. My grandmother has gone through a lot, right? And she wants people to be judged for their wrongdoing, right? And as Christians, we want people to believe in Jesus to escape judgment. But the judgment is still there. I'm going to say that. And God judges those who oppress this world. And that, that's a good thing. God is glorified in his judgment. He is most glorified in the salvation of sinners, but he also is glorified in his judgment. If he wasn't, then why would David write the way he writes? Why would David ask God to break the arm of the wicked? And this is a, a part of our theology and understanding of God that we probably need to think through a little bit more because it might make us feel a little bit uncomfortable to talk about the judgment of God. But at the same time, do we want Hitler to get off scot-free, right? Do we want him to get off scot-free? Well, no, we understand that there are people that do terrible things that should face judgment. Where the gospel comes in is it, is it says, well, we've all done terrible things. We're all going to face judgment. And it's the only way to get, across, get away from it is through Christ, through believing in Jesus. Is the judgment going to fall on us, or is it going to fall on Christ? And for us who believed and have turned from our sin, it falls on Jesus. And thank God for that. Thank God for that. So in this woman's testimony, we see that God cares about the abused. He cares about the exploited, and he judges those that abuse and exploit and offers, at the same time, salvation for those people. The second thing we see from the slave girl is that at God's table, there's room for everyone to sit and eat. Again, Lydia and the slave girl are totally different. And while being totally different and having totally different stories, they're saved saved by the one and the same Jesus. They're saved by the one and the same gospel. And it is out of these two women that this church in Philippi started. I mean, think about it. This is like you guys, right? You got Lydia's and you got slave girls. That's what God chooses to use to start this church. People that are totally different from each other. And so our church should be an example of that. I've thought about one thing we could do maybe in the future is sit down and get everyone's testimony on video and have sort of a, a, a compile a list or a video archive of our testimonies to show how God, this one message, manifests itself in all of these different ways. I think that'd be a very, very cool thing to do because at God's table, there's room for everyone to sit and eat. So looking so far, the ground we've covered, 
We've seen two testimonies. Quiet salvation in Lydia, loud salvation in the slave girl. And now the last testimony we're going to see is a testimony of the Philippian jailer. And what we're going to learn here in this last section is that sometimes God saves quietly, sometimes God saves loudly, and sometimes God saves instantly. God saves right in a moment. What we learn from the Philippian jailer, some of us the Lord saves in a moment of crisis. And maybe that's your story. Maybe God saved you in a moment of crisis. For the Philippian jailer, he was in charge of looking after Paul and Silas and the rest of the folks that are in jail. After Paul and Silas deliver this uh, slave girl from oppression, her owners don't like it, right? They lost sort of their cash cow um, in a worldly way, we can understand, right? Uh, your, your means of, of, you know, making a buck. And so they incite a riot. They get uh, Paul and Silas and the rest of the crew thrown in jail. And now the Philippian jailer is in charge of keeping these guys, making sure they don't get away. His crisis moment comes whenever an earthquake happens. So an earthquake happens, the doors are opened up, the shackles fall off. These people, these um, prisoners are ready to just kind of walk out of the um, walk out of the jail. For the jailer to lose prisoners, the punishment is death, okay? Back then, if, if you were in charge of prisoners, if you were a jailer and you lost someone, you were going to die. And so the jailer, looking at this, assumes, oh man, these guys are out. I'm about, you know, I, I'm doomed. Um, and so he attempts to take his life. This is what it says. The jailer woke up when he saw the prison doors open. He drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. This is the crisis moment. This is the moment of no return from this guy. I've never been driven to this moment before. I don't know about you, okay? And if, if you have, then the Bible speaks to that. And I think that's a, that's a very good thing to, to realize. The Bible speaks to people that have been pushed so far to the edge that they are contemplating taking their own life. God sees those people, and the gospel is for those people. This man believes that he has a death sentence, and instead of letting the state take it out on him, he says, I'm going to take it in my own hands. I'm going to take it out on me. I'm going to kill myself. There's no reason to live. I'm as good as dead. And so in the moment of this crisis, in the midst of it, Paul calls out from this dungeon, from the jail cell, calls out to this man and preaches Christ to him. What a beautiful thing. At the moment of no return, Paul speaks Jesus into the darkness and calls this man from the edge of the cliff, calling him not to kill himself, but to believe in the Lord Jesus. We can learn a few things from this man's testimony. We can learn a few things from this man. The first is this. God saves people whenever grace is shown to them and whenever grace is known by them. Okay? So what I mean by that? Grace is shown to this man in that Paul and Silas didn't leave. Can you imagine being unlawfully thrown in jail, a miraculous you know, happening, an earthquake happens, you, are, you can just walk right out, right? Freedom. And you choose to stay in. And you don't leave. And you don't leave for the sake of the jailer. 
Because you know that this guy, even though he's the one that kind of got you in the jail in the first place, you know that if you do leave, he's going to die. And so instead of getting the freedom that you rightfully deserve, you just sit in jail. Can you imagine doing that? But that's exactly what Paul and Silas do. Verse 28, Paul shouted out, Do not harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling. Then he brought them out and he asked, What must I do to be saved? This man sees the grace that he has been shown and responds by asking how he can be saved. God saves people whenever grace is shown to them. Incredible grace shown by Paul and Silas. The second thing that we see, God saves people whenever grace is known by them. What do I mean by that? The man asks an interesting question. Why does he ask this question? What must I do to be saved? Has anyone ever asked you that question? I don't think I've ever been asked that question. What must I do to be saved? Why would he, one, understand he needs to be saved, two, know that he should ask them this question? Why does it, where does it come from? He knows to ask Paul and Silas this question because all they've been doing the entire night has been talking about Jesus. Verse 25. This is before the miracle and the doors open up. At midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Paul and Silas were thrown in jail. They just kept talking about Christ, the gospel and salvation, just ringing out through the jail cell. The jailer is probably annoyed and like, I wish these people would shut up, right? <laughs> I wish they'd, they'd, talk, they'd stop talking so much. But then whenever his moment of crisis comes, he knows who to go to. He knows to go to Paul and Silas because they have been talking about this salvation. If we put that on us, would people know to come to you in a moment of crisis? Would people know that you are the one that has the answers that they need? He came to Paul and Silas because he knew that they had the answers. What must I do to be saved? Salvation happens whenever grace is shown to others and whenever grace is known, that they know there is a way out. Because a lot of times people don't know that there's a way out. They're looking for answers. They're looking for someone to help them. Do they know that you're that type of person? I think that's a powerful thing. So God can use a crisis and show grace and know grace to save people. And finally, what we see from the Philippian jailer God often uses a crisis to save. After 9-11, the Sunday after 9-11, September 16th, uh, Redeemer Church in New York City, it's a a big church. Um, Their pastor is is kind of famous in the pastor circles. His name is Tim Keller. The Sunday after, their congregation went from 2,800 people that they averaged The next Sunday after 9-11, it ballooned to 5,400. So in that span of two weeks, their service doubled in response to 9-11. These are New Yorkers, right, that had gone through 9-11. They had had their service. They turned around. They had another service because they had so many people coming to the doors. This is what Tim Keller said following 9-11. He said, a good number of people started coming to Redeemer Church after 9-11 and found Christ. 
evangelism was fruitful. Whenever people are confronted with such a raw display of their inability and ineptitude to control their lives, they start looking for answers. Whenever people come to a moment of crisis where they don't know what is happening, and I don't think we're, with the corona stuff, I don't think we're at that crisis level, right? Um, I definitely think that type of thing has happened in the past. Think about the Black Plague and Spanish flu and all that. But whether it's 9-11, whether it's just your own personal life, stuff going on, whenever you come to a moment of crisis, you look for answers, okay? That's exactly what the testimony of the Philippian jailer tells us. And we as a church, we need to be the people with answers. We as followers of Jesus, we need to be the people with answers, Because we have answers, right? We have the answer. And the answer is Jesus Christ. The answer is the gospel. And what an opportunity that we have. The Philippian jailer really should cause us to keep our eyes peeled, to push with people, not be pushy. If you ask someone, how's it going, they're going to say, I'm doing okay. Right? That's what we all say. I'm, I'm all right. Whether they're okay or not, okay? We don't know where people are at. We don't know what people are going through. But we do know we have the answer for them, and the answer is Christ. And so in moments of crisis, in uncertain times, we have to be the people that speak up. We have to be the Paul and the Silas that calls people to believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. These are incredible testimonies that we see. Lydia the slave girl, the Philippian jailer, they all teach us important things about the power of a testimony. You all have a testimony if you have believed in Christ. You all know the one message of the gospel, but have experienced it in different ways. There are people that I will not, just how I am, God will not use me to reach. But God will use you. Because you might be a similar person, might have a similar story as someone that God wants to reach. And so let's be a people that shares our testimonies. Let's be a people that shares the gospel. Let's be a people that pushes, that points people to Christ and use these stories that God has given us for the salvation of others. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I just want to thank you again for your word. Thank you for the, the power of your word and the power of Christ that, um, that he has saved these people, Lord, that really have uh, just nothing in common, Lord. And it doesn't matter because the gospel is the same message. It doesn't change, but it changes us, and we're all different. And so as this one message with many stories, I ask, Lord, what is our story? What is the story that you are writing in our lives? What is the story that you want us to tell? How have you changed us, Lord? Have we even thought about that? If, if someone were to ask, well, why do you believe what you believe? Why do you do what you do? Uh, what is it about you? Uh, tell me about this Jesus. How has he changed your life? Do we have a story to tell them? Do we have a testimony? And can we speak it, Lord? So I just want to pray over the church, us here, especially with everything going on, Lord, that we would not miss and not move our eyes from this one message. Depend on that message. Romans 1.16 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation 
Lord, help us not to be ashamed of the gospel because it's the only thing that saves. Only you open hearts to believe. Only you do that. But the story that comes out of that is unique. It's powerful, Lord. Let's share it with others. They can't argue with us. They can't argue with our testimony, Lord. They may want to argue about Jesus. They can't argue with what he's done in our lives. Let's use that, God. Let's follow the example. Let's learn how you save people. And let's go out and speak this message, Lord. So I just want to pray over all of us that we would take this to heart, that you would use this word in our lives. Grateful, Lord, for your grace. Grateful for this morning that we can gather. We know that that's a, not going to be the case moving forward, Lord. We love you, God. We thank you. It's all in Jesus that we pray.